0: Happy haunts materialize And begin to vocalize
1: Grim, grimy ghosts
2: Dad, did you see what
1: I did? Well, I'll be a uncle You so totally rock, Squirt You're such an amazing
2: kid Children, huh?
1: Solar
0: salutations, fashion fanatics I'm Ray Cathode on fashion the hot news at the Mars shows is color.
1: A little bit of Mindy in my life. A little bit of Mickey for her side.
0: Your attention, please. Last call for the Walt Disney World Railroad, now departing for a grand circle tour around the Magic Kingdom. W, w-, 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 w-
2: Your Information
1: Station. Welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World Information Station. I'm your host, Lou Mangiello, and I want to thank you for tuning in again this week. This is show number 55 for the week of February 24th, 2008. This week, I once again have to record and produce the show early, so it might just be a little bit shorter and a little different than usual, but I'll start off, as always, with some Walt Disney World news, where I'll discuss an exciting new promotion for annual pass holders. In my trip aboard the Walt Disney World Wayback Machine, I'm going to grab my swimming trunks, pick up Jeff Pepper, and head on over to the old swimming hole at River Country, Walt Disney World's first water park, and a place that conjures up some great memories of water slides, sand beaches, picnics, and some great times spent with family. Now closed, it's going to be a fun look back at the history, attractions, and demise of this very unique destination. I'll also have some time to answer some more of your emails this week, so sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. As I'm recording the show early this week, I only have a couple of pieces of news in the Walt Disney World News section. But first, if you are a baseball fan, the Tampa Bay Rays are going to be returning to Disney's Wide World of Sports Complex to play the Toronto Blue Jays from April 22nd through the 24th in a regular season series. Having regular season baseball games over at Disney's Wide World of Sports just adds to the number of unique experiences that guests can have when they visit the resort. Individual tickets for the three-game series are going to go on sale Saturday, February 16th. Those are going to be at the Champion Stadium box office at Disney's Wide World of Sports. You can also go to RaysBaseball.com or call 727-898-7297. Everybody that attends the game in Orlando is also going to receive a voucher for a ticket to a designated weekend game over at the Tropicana Field later on this season. The Rays are also going to be offering a special three-game package with luxury entertainment suites and group ticket specials. Again, you can go to 888-FAN-RAYS or log on to RaysBaseball.com. Heading on over to the resorts now, Walt Disney World recently earned its fourth and fifth four-diamond distinctions from the American Automobile Association. Disney's Contemporary Resort and Disney's Polynesian joined the Yacht and Beach Club and the Grand Floridian Resort and Spa with their own official four-diamond ratings for 2008. The AAA Diamond rating process is really considered to be North America's premier hotel and restaurant rating system. It's interesting to note that in addition to the Yacht and Beach Club resorts, that now all three of the Disney Monorail resorts are AAA for Diamond Hotels. If you are a Walt Disney World annual pass holder, there was some exciting news that was released earlier this week as now annual pass holders can purchase a special vacation package that includes either the standard or deluxe Disney dining plan, which was previously unavailable to annual pass holders. These annual pass holder packages are only available for stays from March 30th through May 21st, 2008. Now, you can either call Disney directly or go through a travel agent that specializes in Disney travel. And there's a number of different codes that you can request, depending on what kind of uh, dining package you want or what kind of discount that you want. I'll put those codes up in this week's show notes page over at WDWRadio.com. And I'll try and answer one of your possible questions in advance. I was talking to Disney Dame 2004 alerted me to this and she let me know that only one adult in the room needs to have an annual pass in order to get the annual pass holder room plus dining package. So, not all the people who may be vacationing with you have to have an annual pass. So, for example, if you're an annual pass holder but your wife and kids are not, that's okay because everybody who's in the room can get the dining package. Now, one difference to note is that it is a package and now it requires a $200 deposit and payment in full 45 days in advance as opposed to doing a one night deposit and paying the balance when you arrive at the hotel. She also did some late night checking and math for me on her part, and she got a reservation at a rack rate for three nights at Port Orleans French Quarter for $579. The annual pass holder rate with dining was $722 for the same resort and same number of nights. So it was an increase of $143 for two people. So you get the dining for three nights, and it works out to basically $24 per person per day, which obviously is a great deal. Um, So this is something, if you're an annual pass holder, you should really be excited about. Again, those travel dates are from March 30th through May 21st, thousand eight. Again, I'll put all of the applicable codes in this week's show notes for room-only discounts, as well as packages with dining and deluxe dining. You can check those out over at wdwradio.com. And for more news and to discuss anything you may have heard in this week's news section, I invite you to head on over to DisneyWorldTrivia.com and the WDW Radio or News Forums. For this week's Walt Disney World Wayback Machine, we're going to travel back so far into time that I wanted someone to join me who not only remembers what we're going to explore, but has lasting memories of it as well. So, of course, I want to welcome back my good buddy, Jeff Pepper from 2719hyperion.com. Jeff, welcome. Hey, Lou. How's it going? Good. It's been a long time since we've uh, hopped aboard the Wayback Machine. So uh, we've got something I I think that's going to be really fun this week.
0: Yeah, we're going we're gonna to put on our trunks and do a little swimming.
1: <laughs> yeah, because, you know, when you, when you think of Walt Disney World, really the first thing that comes to mind is, is, you know, maybe the Magic Kingdom or Epcot or your favorite resort or parade. But so much of what makes Walt Disney World such an amazing place and no longer a destination that you can just kind of do it all in just a few days is what lies outside the borders of the theme parks. And if you went to Walt Disney World in the 70s or the 80s, when there was only one Magic Kingdom theme park, you might remember some of those things that you could do other than enjoying just attractions and shows. So this week in The Wayback Machine, we're going to take a look at just one of those experiences. It's one that, for me personally, conjures up some really good fond memories of great times that I spent with my family um, that, that I think really helped make Walt Disney World a true resort vacation destination. And we're talking about River Country, which was Walt Disney World's first water park and I guess it holds a distinction of being its first extinct water, ba- <laughs> extinct water park. Um, and part of this was prompted by Jeff's idea. And I've also gotten a ton of emails about River Country. People want to know what happened to it. Why did it close? You know, I remember this, but my friend doesn't. Am I crazy? Did this, did this really exist? So, Jeff, I think this week we're going to be able to really address and answer a lot of those questions.
0: Yeah, it's River Country is very important because it was so innovative. And so much sprang from it, um, like what you were saying about extending um, the experience out of the theme park. But it's just, it's very notable because it, it so much evolved out of it, the other water parks and such, and sadly, it's fading away very quickly. It's its truly becoming a real memory just for those of us who really experienced it a lot, because even prior to its closing in um, 2001, it had kind of faded out with the, with the prominence of Blizzard Beach and Typhoon Lagoon opening.
1: All right, so let's start off by talking a little bit about the history of River Country. Uh, it was part of Disney's Fort Wilderness Resort and Campground, but it actually wasn't an opening day part of the resort. It, it opened really about five years later on June 20th, 1976. And, and here's your first trivia question, Jeff. Do you know who was the person that officially opened um, River Country? I do not. Surprise it was, me. It was Gerald Ford's daughter Susan. She was a Don't ask me how or why she was the person chosen to open it, but there you go. That's your trivia question.
0: I failed miserably. <laughs>
1: But um, so it wasn't located just next to Bay Lake, but it really was actually connected to it. And we'll talk later on about how that may have actually played into the demise of River Country um, because it was sort of dammed off from the lake, which created this lagoon that served as the beach and swimming area. But, Jeff, let's talk a little bit about the theming of River Country, because that's really what set it apart from just a regular water park.
0: Yeah, it was it was basically they they chose the location at Fort Wilderness, and in kind of keeping with that theme, they decided to go with the whole swimming hole theme, and it it kind of owed a lot to um, to Mark Twain kind of atmosphere. I mean, it, it wasn't far removed from the whole um, Tom Sawyer Island concept of uh, of um, in the Magic Kingdom, and it and, and it actually had things that re- related very directly. They had features that were similar in design and theme to what was on Tom Sawyer Island, so it was it was doing that and because of the adjacency they built it in such a way on Bay Lake that they were using the lake so it just kind of played into the whole swimming hole, I mean that was the buzzword for, for River Country, it was always in the advertising and the promotional materials just in the guidebooks it was the old swimming hole and they kind of played to sort of the, the childhood fantasy of, you know, heading down a rural road with your buddies and, and, and going into, you know, the local pond.
1: And, and that's exactly what it did, and it sort of resolved that very well between that, that Mark Twain-esque feeling and also being that, that rustic sort of feel to, to match what you'd get from Fort Wilderness. Now, believe it or not, one of the things that's actually notable about this and the architecture and the design is the rock work because the rock work was created by somebody and influenced by somebody that who's, whose work we've seen elsewhere in, in the Magic Kingdom.
0: Yeah, uh, as everybody who pays attention to the, the Haunted Mansion uh, tombstones, uh, co- as it, Cousin Fred, Brother Fred, the, the great big rock fell on his head, is referring to Fred Jorger, who, who just has this reputation for rock work. I mean, pretty much every rock that was ever designed for a a disney theme park through pretty much the 1980s was a result of fred's handiwork and uh he once again did a very very magnificent job especially to the extent where it is so well blended into the landscape of fort wilderness there that you know you you kind of you know it's fake but you're you're really hard pressed to tell the difference
1: Yeah. And again, the attention to detail, you know, they don't, they decide not to just use rocks from Florida that they found or stuff that they dredged up from Bay Lake, but they bring in pebbles from Georgia and the Carolinas just for, for the color and the texture to really give it that, that look that they were trying to go for.
0: Yeah. I I think just to to let everybody know too, that, that the important context to put river country in is like, once again, going back to 1976. And I think it's what you alluded to when you were introducing the segment is that disney world was very much in phase one and so the geography of disney world was very very small compared to what it has grown into today uh we're basically we're just looking at a geography that was just centered around bay lake and the seven seas lagoon with um, just the existing resource in fort wilderness so the placement while it may seem weird and we'll talk about that in a little bit it was very much a part of that that geography and And so it wasn't a big jump for people to have to take a boat to it or the fact that it was, you know, located within the campground resort per se.
1: Yeah, and I think that was part of the appeal was that that quaint sort of of out-of-the-way aspect um, that that you had there. And because the location was uh, very deliberate, because it needed to be attached to Bay Lake, because Bay Lake really fed the water into the water park – it just—it was very, very unique. Along and then let's kind of talk about maybe the park itself and that the connection, literally and figuratively, um, to Bay Lake, because Disney had to sort of design a system that's going to keep all this—these millions of gallons of fresh water—in River Country. So they build this giant flexible tube at the mouth of the old swimming hole, which is sort of the, the lagoon that they created, and it, it sort of automatically it expanded and contracted to keep the river country water level six inches higher than what was in the lake. And there was a a special sensor system that was designed through that. And this, this water actually fed the attractions in Bay Lake as well. I'm sorry, in river country as well.
0: It's again, it's, it's ingenious. I mean, it's, it's again showing the innovation of what the technologies and innovation of the imagineers and designers that put Disney world together, because here you get, you have something that when the people were running down and jumping in that water, um, they were taking it for granted, but the the water that was in Bay Cove, which was the, the main body of water of River Country, was adjacent to the lake. You were assuming it was the lake water, and you sort of took it for granted, but at the same time, pristine, clean, swimming pool quality water. Right. It, was, it was an amazing technological achievement because it was the water was being fed in and filtered in, and the way it circulated was the water was basically being pumped in through the mountain facade that was created, taken up to the water slides and then shot down the water slides. And that kind of created the circulation system that, that kind of was the dynamic of, of the setup.
1: And the other thing that's notable too is this, this really is sort of the first themed water park like this anywhere, not just in Walt Disney world and sort of a precursor to what we have now over at storm along Bay, unlike other traditional water parks that were scattered around the country and really starting to show up the, um, there were natural sand beaches instead of that you'd find, you know, maybe concrete. So you've got an actual beach on the lake that they built that was all tied into, like you said, the, you know, the, the, the Whoop and Holler Hollow and the the bridges and the and that whole sort of main area there was sand underneath. So you didn't have to worry about jumping into things and there being concrete underneath.
0: Yeah, the, the precedent that had been basically set or that was emerging at the same time River Came came out was sort of if, if people that, you know, remember international... Drive and Wet and Wild, they were very stark, very popular, but very stark, not at all themed water parks. They were, you know, literally these mountains of, you know, concrete and tubing and just just really not a whole lot of atmosphere to them. And River Country basically, again, created an environment that you didn't have a sense of being concrete or fabricated. It was very, very natural in its setting.
1: Absolutely and it goes to, to my next point. I remember when you walked into the entrance um, there were these three large um, I, I guess they were parrots or macaws or whatever they were and it almost tied into Fort Wilderness and the theming of River Country and Discovery Island which was, which was eventually going to be across the way and you really got a very exotic feel uh, when you went there. And the other thing too was the water park was very, very small. I mean, when you talk about quaint, I mean, it, it literally was a quarter of the size of Typhoon Lagoon or Blizzard Beach.
0: And, and That's an important point because at this stage of Walt Disney World's development, there wasn't this, you know, it was, again, phase one. It was the 70s. The, the resort itself was barely, you know, half a decade old. And it it was, things were very focused on intimacy and quaintness and there wasn't this overwhelming desire to have scope yet because the park was still growing and, and it's that's ultimately what, what River Country falls victim to because it was small and quaint and it was sort of the, the, the parallel could be almost Disney MGM Studios when it opened. It becomes so wildly popular that it just bursts to capacity very, very quickly and it is so popular that it becomes very dense with gas.
1: Yeah, and that's something that we're going to talk about too when we talk about sort of what started to happen to River Country in the late 90s and in, and in 2000. And the other thing we should know too is you talk about phase one. This, like I said, Jeff, is when people said, hey, you know, we're not just going to the Magic Kingdom where we can shoot in and out in a day. Now we've got something else to do. We've got the Lake Buena Vista Village. We've got River Country. We can go and spend the day and the evening actually over at River Country and really make this, you know, a a destination vacation.
0: And and as you just mentioned, when Discovery Island came along, one of the very popular things that they did was they paired up Disney, Discovery Island and River Country. There was basically they marketed it as a kind of a combination package where you could get a combination ticket. And because they were very accessible to one another by launch, I mean, you basically went to the Fort Wilderness Stocks there took the launch over to Discovery Island. That was their, their kind of their extension, as you're saying, as to, okay, you spend a day at the Magic Kingdom. Now here's another day, or you spent two days or three days at the Magic Kingdom. Here's another full day of events for you. You can spend half the day, at you know River Country or part of the day at River Country, spend uh, do a tour of Discovery Island, go back to River Country. That was really the first move, away, as you said, from a, just a strictly a theme park experience.
1: Absolutely, and, and there was a lot more to do there than just, you know, let the kids go play in the water or go down a water slide. And it, you you got it for what really was a good value. I mean, when it closed in 2001, I mean, the last prices that I have was, you're talking $16 for an adult for a full day. And remember, this park opened at 9 o'clock in the morning and didn't close oftentimes until 10 o'clock at night. I mean, this was also a nighttime experience as well. And there was a lot to do there. I mean, there was really a lot to do. And so we'll, we'll talk about some of the things that you could have done when you went to, to River Country. And one of the big draws was the Hoop and Holler Hollow, which was this double water slide that dumped you right out into Bay Cove, again, like we said, which was the sand bottom lake. And there was all kinds of cool stuff there. There were tire swings and, and these, the, I remember the zip lines and sort of the, the ropes that you can climb up on on these barrel bridges. Um, and I remember the slide itself had, it, it was big, and there was these long corkscrews. And I remember comparing it to other water slides I had been on, uh, you know, as I traveled with my parents, we drove everywhere. So I was able to experience a lot of different water slides around the country and just how different and how exciting it was because of that environment that we talked about.
0: Yeah, the, the thing with River Country to me is I, I first visited River Country, I think, I believe it was in 1981. And I was with my family on a family vacation and I had never experienced anything like River Country. You know, I was from the Northeast there wasn't, I mean, I never had been to a water park in any way, shape, or form, and it just blew my mind. It was just like the coolest thing because, you know, that first experience you have, I mean, you know, for so many people now, especially with Disney World and Typhoon Lagoon and Blizzard Beach, you know, a water park experience while still being excited is generally passe. I mean, you've seen it, you've done it, you know, they're all over the place. But back then, these weren't common attractions, and as a kid, I mean, I, it just blew me away. the The corkscrew. I mean, the hoot and Holler was the series of corkscrews, you know. And it was a body slide, and it was just like, wow, yeah. <laughs> you know, this this ain't your sliding board at your built-in pool. You know, this this was something pretty amazing. Right, and you're
1: not you're not getting dumped like a regular water slide. You're not getting dumped in this little pool where you have to hurry up and get out of. I mean, Bay Cove was in half an acre in size, and there was a beach across the way, and there were all these things that you could do once you went in. Like I said, the cable things and and the bridges. Uh, on either end. And of course, in the distance, you've got a view of the contemporary and the Magic Kingdom and the boats on the water. I mean, it was just, I have very, very vivid memories of, of spending a lot of time there.
0: It, I, I do have to share a memory about it, because what is really interesting about River Country for me is that when I went, like I said, I, I went, I believe it was 81. And my parents, my mom and dad had gone on a vacation, I think a year or two prior to taking me this time. And I hadn't been able to go that time and all they did when they came back from their particular vacation was talk about how wonderful river country was and the thing that's important in this is that my mother was not a swimming pool person um i grew up never ever seeing my mom really get into a swimming pool she just wasn't that she wasn't a swimmer she wasn't someone that liked pools or whatever you know she sat at the little patio deck and, and sipped her iced tea and she came back from this trip just raving about river country so much so that i couldn't wait to go back and literally when we went back that following year here's my mom who just you know like i said would never even put a bathing suit on was making a mad dash to the top of the mountain to grab the inner tube for the for the, the raft ride and you know and i mean you know this was like mom? <laughs> yeah. and and it was just it was it was such a very cool family experience i mean you and i talk so much about the how disney world means so much to us because of our histories with our family and how it's a family experience. And that was what River Country was in those first few visits because I was on family vacations. And it was, you had a blast with your family because you're all in your inner tubes heading down the slide and you were all bumping into each other and just having a really good time. And it really brought that really to bear. I mean, it was just such a joyful experience in that regard.
1: And that was the great thing about it too, Bay Cove, because if you didn't want to go in the water, There was a huge beach that you can sit on. There were lounge chairs and there were umbrellas and there was uh, lifeguards. I remember seeing lifeguards everywhere. uh, And and no one, you know, talking to my parents now, they say that they never had any sort of issues as far as safety and security and things like that. And And on the opposite side of one of the bridges, was Kitty's Cove. It originally was called the Old Wading Pool, but it was an, an area for some of the smaller guests, no short strokes please, to go and enjoy. And again, there was a beach there as well, and they had smaller water slides and things like that. So it really was a full, like you said, a family experience. And if you wanted to go down the Whitewater Rapids, you could do it. You want to wade in the pool, you could do it. You want to just go into the zero-entry sand-bottom Lake you could do that as well, whatever sort of your style was. And, and there were other things, too. There was a, um, a little spray pond called Indian Springs. And if you've seen some of like the little pop-up jets, like in uh, the, the bridge between Future World and World Showcase uh, that shoot up the sprays of water, they're also in downtown Disney. Indian Springs had that. There was also a nature trail that was right next to Bay Lake um, that was added a little bit after the park had opened. Um, to the right, as you came in, there was this walking trail that I remember had this bridge uh, that kind of went out to this little um, gazebo on the water. And if you've take, if you ever taken a wishes cruise, maybe from Wilderness Lodge or anything like that, oftentimes they'll take you by there and you can actually see that extension. And I don't know if you remember, Jeff, you could also take horseback and pony rides too. There was a little petting farm there and you could take out pony rides. You could also go to the dock and take out um, the water mice. And if you wanted to go out on Bay Lake, I mean, there was a lot to do there. And really you could spend a full day.
0: Yeah, because they, they, they did have the petting zoo set up. Then there was the Fort Wilderness stables and such, and they, they had they had the petting zoo set up at that point, didn't
1: they? I'm trying to remember if, if I know the horseback rides um, came. I mean, I'm sorry, the nature trail came later. The petting zoo, I think, was there from when it first opened.
0: Because that was the Circle the Circle D Ranch, correct? Right. Yeah. And no, yeah, it, it, it was interesting because the thing that it did was at least from from my standpoint, but I think it was true across the board was A lot of people never, ever made it over to Fort Wilderness and Fort Wilderness had a lot going on, but you just, if you were staying at the contemporary or staying at the Polynesian or even staying off property, it was just not somewhere you went because, you know, you had to go, there was the the system of parking and trams and buses or whatever to get, I think it was mainly trams back then. I think it was initially trams that took you from the parking area down to river country or you were taking the boats over from the other resorts. So it, you know, it wasn't easily accessible so a lot of people never made it so when you got there and you had all of this just sort of at your at your doorstep all of a sudden it was it was just incredible you had so much to do
1: and i think that was the appeal was that you you were so far removed just like fort wilderness itself and we talked about wilderness lodge you feel so far removed from the theme park experience and, and you are kind of just relaxing and and doing whatever you want to do and spending a day just sort of enjoying what river country had to offer and there was also something else too you know we talk about uh, Bay Lake feeding into Bay Cove. Well, there also was another pool there was a 330,000 de- gallon, gallon pool called Upstream Plunge that also had another set of water slides that went into it called the Slippery Slide Falls, which I, I, my memory sort I remember it being sort of like this straight drop down. It wasn't yeah, curved. Well, was, <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm glad you went into this because I was actually going to bring it up too, is I have to say, you know, you could take twilight zone tower terror whatever i don't care my most terrifying experience (laughs) at at walt disney world to this day was standing climbing up to the top of those slides the slippery slide falls and all of a sudden realizing that there was it was a total vertical drop (laughs) (laughs) and i remember going up there with my brother and going oh my god what have i gotten i mean i could climb to the top of summit plummet and i don't think i would still be as terrified as I was. And those were, I think, what, seven foot drops or right. two, I don't yeah. know how, but they weren't dramatically high, but you just, you just, it was like going over the edge of a cliff with a little bit of, you know, water under your behind.
1: <laughs> right. And, and again, you didn't go into, I mean, this was a separate area behind the beach. So you, you weren't going into the, the, the naturally fed um, Bay Cove. You were into, in this, this clear freshwater, um, you know, giant pool um, off to the side. And there were other stuff that you, that you could do there too. I mean, even beyond just the water activities. Um, if you want, I mean, this was very unique. I think for Walt Disney World was there was a place that you could actually go. There was a picnic area. Um, there was a, there was a place called Pop's Place where you can get snacks like burgers and, and hot dogs and whatnot. But you could actually bring your own food if you wanted, especially if you were staying over at Fort Wilderness and have a picnic over in this in this picnic area.
0: It yeah, one another memory I have, and again this again my mother was all about this site. My mom had a strategy for River Country that would make Glen Pesta proud because when we went it was it had reached a point of popularity at that point where it was just you you had to be there at the gate and much as my friends and I would talk about the Space Mountain Dash or the Splash Mountain Dash when we were going a lot there was the the lounge chair Dash in River Country. I mean, that gate opened and you had this swarm of people heading down to the beach to get, position themselves with their lounge chairs. I mean because there was only a limited amount there and it's basically it was because you were setting up camp for the entire day
1: exactly. you were
0: making a day of this and so you were staking out your claim on that beach much the way people stake out claims at beaches in California or Florida or whatever it was that type of dynamic and it was very it was very interesting because there again I said there was my mom going 90 miles an hour down that cement path to get to the beach to stake her claim
1: right and, and- Unfortunately, that really was the polar opposite of what had happened in the late 90s. Uh, again, we'll talk about the, the sort of demise of River Country at that point. But it, there were attendance problems later on because there were other offerings. But like you said, this was the only game in town. It was so unique. And it was a place, like you said, that you can spend a full day. You, you sort of had to do that. So because like you said, it did get packed. I mean, this, you know, it would close its doors because it would reach capacity. And believe it or not, it really was that small size and the frequency of the day selling out that ended up being its own its own worst enemy. Because that led to the construction of the two additional water parks, Typhoon Lagoon and Blizzard Beach. Typhoon Lagoon opened in June of 89, Blizzard Beach opened in April 95. Now you've got these new resorts there. The popularity of River Country kind of diminishes a little bit because there are other offerings that they can go to. And that was just one of the things that started to lead to the sounding of the death knell for River Country.
0: And again, the biggest, biggest part of it was, you know, granted, you did have Typhoon Lagoon, which was much larger, um, much more to it, sort of a lot, lot flashier, you know, sexier. Um, and but accessibility really was the issue because the resort had expanded. You had expanded out to Um, both Epcot and then just prior to Typhoon Lagoon opening within just like a month or two uh, Disney MGM Studios had opened just prior to it so you had this just just this general overall expansion of Disney World there were there were multiple resorts opening the Caribbean Beach had just opened it was the first moderate resort to open so you had this great expansion and getting to River Country became an issue Um, and and with Typhoon Lagoon having so much more to offer, it, it was the beginning of the end, as you, as you said.
1: Yeah, and there were other things, too, that started to play against river country. And when we were talking about comparisons to Typhoon Lagoon and Blizzard Beach and what they had to offer and some of the amenities uh, and some of the, the maybe higher tech slides, another thing that was a big factor in this was that the pools and the water in river country, remember, it's being fed by Bay Lake, were not heated. So... One thing was River Country wasn't open all year long. River Country closed, unlike Typhoon Lagoon and Blizzard Beach, that closed for just a few weeks or a few, you know, at a time in the winter. Uh, River Country would close for months at a time, usually between October and January. So you're talking about a couple of months. And let me clarify one thing too, Jeff. When I said the pools weren't heated, I mean that Bay Cove and those areas weren't heated, as opposed to... um, the upstream plunge and the slippery slide falls, that separate pool was heated, but that's really not where the most part of all the attractions and, and things were. So that, that actually definitely played into it as well.
0: Yeah, there and and, and and when this when this happened, when you when you the interesting thing again is that the fact is that Typhoon Lagoon opened and it was so wildly popular that it still could not meet the demand of the people that wanted a water park experience so subsequently a few years later blizzard beach opens up and you know one of the things that even when you saw typhoon lagoon and then subsequently blizzard beach open up it didn't take you know a genius to realize that something had to give on on uh, river country and i i just remember there was a lot of speculation going on throughout the 90s as to what was going to happen to it and you'd heard a lot of them just kind of making it a large resort pool area for Fort Wilderness. That, and, and that seemed like that would have been the natural thing to do, but I guess the costs in maintaining it without it being an actual gated, having a gated admission were ultimately prohibitive. But, you know, that was something that seemed to have been floated around a lot that it would be maintained, but just as sort of a resort pool, a, a la Long Bay, except for the, the campground.
1: Right, and they tried something else too in, in 1998. They co- they did a, a sort of a special event every day called the All-American Water Party, and sort of a la Pleasure Island, how it used to celebrate New Year's Eve every night, well, River Country would celebrate every day as the Fourth of July, and they really wanted to kind of make it, again, keeping with that Fort Wilderness sort of concept, this family sort of picnic day, and they'd have sack races and and tug-of-wars and water balloon fights, things like that. Disney characters were now being introduced. They'd come over. There'd be a band playing. There'd be a huge barbecue, and that lasted for a number of years because now you to have sort of another theme sort of added on top of what it was, and that really only lasted until the early um, early two thousands. You know, maybe two thousand one or so. But now you've got. happening and everything is just starting to fall into place because obviously the decrease in tourism that happened after 9-11 obviously impacted the country and obviously the theme park industry certainly Walt Disney World greatly um river country itself was already starting to struggle this may have been one of the, the the major factors of it and the other thing too was I said at the beginning Bay Lake how it fed into Bay Cove was both a blessing and a curse because the water wasn't Chlorinated, and there were some probably issues with algae and bacteria and whatnot, uh, because this this water system really wasn't wasn't treated at all. It couldn't really be treated because it was fed directly from Bay Lake.
0: Yeah, it was it was heavily filtered, but again, you're correct. It it wasn't, it, and again, you're 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 being giving a, t- a totally different experience in that regard at Typhoon Lagoon and Blizzard Beach. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And, and for a while, you could actually rent out River Country for private parties. There's many venues throughout the property that you can, and you might not realize that River Country was one of them. So people could rent it out for private parties, for corporate events, or, hey, listen, if you got the money, you want to rent it out for your kid's birthday, I'm sure you could have done that as well. But, uh, you know, as of November 2001, that's when it sort of quietly shut its doors. And it really wasn't until four years later, in January of 2005, that Disney sort of formally announces that, river country is going to be closed permanently, um, even though there really was no chance of it reopening at that point anyway. Um, there was a lot of damage. There was a lot of hurricane damage. The the pools and the water slides and everything else had just deteriorated to the point that it was so overgrown and it was so run down um, that the chances of, of reopening anytime soon were, were slim to none.
0: Yeah, and, it's, and that's where it's, it's really almost just totally faded from memory. And and actually, the idea that I had when I, when I contacted you and said, you know, let's let's do River Country. It was kind of a bittersweet experience. As I was exploring um, the satellite imagery of Disney World, which everybody's been having a lot of fun with, especially um, with bird's eye views and things like that, where the resolutions gotten really good on programs like Google Earth and Windows Live. I was looking at River Country and it was a very, very kind of a sad sight to see the current state of it via that, that satellite photography.
1: Yeah, and I've actually seen some photographs that uh, that someone was able to send me of what the current state of, of the park looks like now. And, and it is very sad, and you can sort of get a glimpse of it. Like I said, if you do happen to go out on Bay Lake, maybe if you leave from Wilderness Lodge, you can get semi-close to River Country and get an idea. But it looks like a ghost town. And that rock work that we told, that beautiful rock work, is broken away and it's so overgrown and it's so deteriorated and, and the wildlife is just so sort of consumed river country it looks nothing like what it is now i i actually know and i've, I've seen footage from a couple of years ago i know that there was a, a a major tv network let's just say that went to river country and shot a pilot there and it was the first and only time that they used river country since it uh Since it had been shut down, they actually turned the water on. They did some shots there for this this TV pilot that was never actually launched. But I I got to see some of the footage, and it was really sad to see. You know, you look at Pop's place and have memories of going there to get your snacks, and it did it. Jeff looks like a movie set of an old ghost town, and the pools were uh, just—it was really a shame to see what it is. And I think the rumors that have been going around over the last couple of years of it possibly being used— as something for Fort Wilderness guests or a couple of years ago, someone said, oh yeah, it's going to be reopened as a pirate-themed water park. Uh, without the influx of a, of a lot of money and I think a lot of time, I don't see either of those happening anytime soon.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like, as, as I mentioned earlier, how the irony of, of it and Discovery Island being sort of that initial non-theme park, non-Magic Kingdom kind of experience for Walt Disney World guests Both of those venues have now really have have become retaken by the wilderness, as it were, as you said. Uh, You know, Discovery Island, we've talked about at times, has fallen into a similar situation where the wildlife and everything is just kind of overgrown and taken it over. And it's, it's just it's an interesting irony, again, that, you know, that Walt Disney World has expanded. It includes so, so much. But these two very distinct attractions from its early, early years have just kind of faded away.
1: And I don't think that, in in some way, shape, or form, we've seen the end of River Country. Obviously, not um, in the way that we remember it, and that you know people who who may be listening may remember it. But because of its location and because of the opportunities that are there, I can't see Disney just letting it fade away the way it has without doing something at some point uh, with the property. Obviously, either spending the money and taking it down and cleaning it up or doing something else there. I mean, it's a prime location. You're on Bay Lake. You've got beautiful views of the water and of the, the contemporary and the magic kingdom in the, in the distance. So there's definitely an opportunity for something there. What it is, I really don't know.
0: And one of the the other kind of, you know, not to get get our listeners too depressed, but one of the things <laughs> that I had mentioned to you and you, you kind of went, oh yeah, you're right, is there's not a great physical legacy left of River Country. Um, you know, we live in this age where, you know, you can't walk 10 feet in a Disney park without bumping into a store or a souvenirs or being able to buy commemorative merchandise of any sort. And River Country really did not produce a lot of any kind of physical material like that or souvenirs. You know, they, they had, you know, shirts and things like that, but they had a very small kind of souvenir stand there. And I, the only thing, and I have, I have quite an extensive You know collection of disney world memorabilia and the only physical thing i have of river country is a button is a small square kind of panel pin of goofy goofy was kind of the the one character largely associated with the park and its promotional materials and its guidebooks and that's the only thing i own and and tonight you know i kind of threw up on ebay just out of curiosity to see and there really isn't anything that the interesting thing that that the material that comes up that's associated with river country are commemorative pins that have been done in the last few years as part of commemorative pin series but there really wasn't anything vintage from that time period at all
1: uh, ironically enough the name of the one small store that really wasn't a merchandise shop i mean very uh, you know apart from what we have now it wasn't a merchandise shop it was a place to get towels and sundries and suntan lotion and things like that it was called river relics um, so <laughs> yeah it, it's a, it's a sad irony and again we're not trying to you know like I said make it a depressing look back at river country we have very very fond memories of it and I think maybe it's that nostalgia and the fact that we miss it so much because of the experience that it gave us uh, and, and I'm sure we're not the only one
0: it, it's it's the reality of the situation it, it's one of these things that you can't feel upset about because it was kind of just the natural way of things I you know the demand for the water park experience River Country was never going to be able to fulfill that in the long term Um, again it's its size and accessibility just kind of wrote its own ticket and you know it's bittersweet but it's a great memory but again it just it 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 can't survive and, and it can't be what it was again I guess is the best way to say it
1: all right, I'm gonna put you on the spot, and I'm gonna say, okay, Jeff, you're CEO for a day. You've got this venue, and you're in charge of taking, of doing something with the old River Country venue. What do you do with it? And yes, you've got relatively unlimited funds. Uh,
0: there, the, yeah. Sorry, I would, I would at least refurbish it to the point where it could be restored as a walking trail type area. Um, let, get it back on the map to have something where people can enjoy it, but because of its accessibility, you know, bring back that kind of sense of nature trails, walking trails that were there for will Fort wilderness and discovery Island. I mean, restore it to that point. So there's not a huge, huge e- expenditure of funds that's needed to maintain it on a regular basis, but at least make it nice and make it accessible. So people can enjoy that, that area, as you said before, it's, it's prime location. And I mean, you could work in possibly, you know, activities into it like special events or dinner shows or things like that. But I, I would at least like to see the area restored to where it's not like, in a deteriorating state, like you said. Yeah. What, I mean, what's, what's your take?
1: I was going to say, <laughs> it's, you, you obviously don't want to see it in the way it is. And for the most part, guests don't see it because you, you really can't go there. You can't walk there. And unless you are on one of the watercraft, you're really not going to have any views of river country. But I think the theming was so unique. And I think it would still hold up today that I would, if I could, I'd like to see River Country come back almost the way it was. And I think that there is enough there for guests to make it a full day experience. And maybe there is some way that you can separate Bay Cove from Bay Lake. Uh, you can still have it. Attached to it, but not have the water actually feed into Bay Cove. Take care of all those issues in that regard. But you've got a huge piece of property right on Bay Lake, next to Fort Wilderness, close to Wilderness Lodge too. That there's there's a lot to do and a lot to offer. And again, we go back to Jeff. It's simple. It's that simple form of family entertainment that is the um, it's really the keystone and the hallmark of of what the Disney Company does. And I think River Country. Really, sort of captures that essence, and and could do that again.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I I wish something would be done. I you know I understand the dynamics of why it hasn't been done, but yeah, I think as you said, if 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 it is viable to, to kind of bring it back and again extend it as a, an extended recreational area off of Fort Wilderness, I I personally feel that the entire sort of Wilderness Lodge, Fort Wilderness kind of area is is kind of underutilized i I think that the recreational opportunities there can be expanded greatly and and kind of a revitalized river country could possibly fit into that
1: i agree and and i'm sure listeners have not only memories maybe that they'd like to share but ideas possibly for what they would do if they could do something with river country so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna put links up in the show notes in the wdw radio forums over at disneyworldtrivia.com i'll start two threads the first, I invite you to come by and share any memories or even photos that you have of River Country, again, because there's not a lot out there. And two, if there was something that you could do, if you had an idea for what you would do with that venue, uh, if you sort of had the power and the money to do so. But uh, Jeff, I, I appreciate you coming on again and sort of helping rekindle some of these, these great memories that obviously we both have of a place that unfortunately is, is no longer one that can be enjoyed by guests of a new generation.
0: It's always fun traveling in the Wayback Machine, It's and River Country was an especially fun memory for me and my family.
1: Thanks, buddy. Thank you. This week's email section is going to start off with a question from Brian from New Orleans who writes, Lou, I recently saw that the Chelsea Football Club, at soccer to you and I, has partnered with Disney. Do you know exactly what this means and are they looking to play exhibition games at the wide world of sports complex? I really think this is a good idea, judging by the number of English soccer jerseys I see while in the parks. Hope you have more info than I've seen. Keep up the good work, Brian. Well, we should start off by saying that, right, when we talk about the Chelsea Football Club, we're not talking about American Rules football. We're actually talking about soccer. And the Chelsea Football Club is a team from the UK and really in an effort to become the world's largest football club brand, partnered with Disney in 2007 at the beginning of what is now going to be a four-year agreement. They are the official professional soccer club of Disney's wide world of sports. They're also the presenting sponsor of the Disney Soccer Showcase series which really is the number one youth soccer event in the United States that's held over at the Wide World of Sports three times a year. This year, it's going to be August, November, and December. Now, when the deal was struck, there were some additional talks planned about how they could maybe work with different entertainment and media brands within Disney. I don't know if that's maybe happening over in the UK. They're also going to have a real significant presence at some of the other Disney-created soccer events through coaching and player clinics that are going to be held in association with some of those events. And those are going to be run under the guidance of the Chelsea Football in the Community program. An annual educational exchange program was also created where at least one Chelsea Soccer Academy team is going to visit and compete at Disney's Wide World of Sports Complex. Now, in exchange, Chelsea is going to bring a winning team from a selected Disney soccer tournament to be their guests at a Chelsea match and train at their soccer academy, which is obviously rapidly becoming internationally renowned as the leading academies for soccer training in the world. I'll put a link up in the show notes where you can find out more about events taking place at Disney's Wide World of Sports Complex. I'll also put a link up where you can find out more about the soccer showcase. Next email comes from Madison in Mount Laurel, New Jersey, who writes, Lou, every year the senior class at my school goes on a trip to Walt Disney World. While this isn't a pressing issue, I'm currently a sophomore, I'm worried that my friends might not be quite as excited to wake up early, follow touring plans, and sprint through the parks like a madwoman as I am any ideas on how to sway them towards commando style touring or should I just accept the fact that seniors will be seniors and resign to waiting in lines thanks for your help and all you do on the show Madison well Madison like you said you got two years to kind of start uh, the brainwashing process and maybe that's what you need to do to a certain degree is when it gets time to start going talk to them a little bit, bit about it see which of your friends in the group and in the class might be more interested in actually going to the parks and seeing what they want to experience and You got to decide, sort of. Do you what's more important to you? Would you rather be with your friends, or do you really want to try and see and experience as much as you can in Walt Disney World? You can, if you really wanted to, get up early or get a couple of girls. Go solo or go with some others to the park and then meet up with some of the other people later on. This way you can get in all your favorite attractions or if you want, just have fun being with some of the other girls and people in your class in Walt Disney World not have to really worry about trying to do it all. Save that maybe for a family-type trip. What you should, though, if you really want to try and convince them is maybe tell them that getting there early means that they'll have more time later on to hang out at the pool and talk to... I mean review class notes for next week and call their mothers and pick up souvenirs for the younger brothers and things like that but like you said you have uh, you have a couple of years before you have to worry about this hopefully you'll be able to get in maybe a couple of other trips with your friends maybe next time you go with your family see if maybe take uh, a friend with you that's really into Disney this way next time you go with the senior class you know at least you have one person that you'll be able to go commando style touring with next email is from WD Fan, who said Lou great show I really enjoy when you have interviews with Imagineers or Disney Legends on this week's show, you talked about how Akershus is adding photos with their dining package. We're going to Disney and eating here for breakfast in the first week of August. Will this change affect the dining plan? Will you have to use more than one meal to eat here now? Thanks for the information and keep up the great work, WD fan. I actually looked into this and double-checked, just just to be sure. There is not going to be any change as far as eating at Akershus, even though now there is a little bit more of an additional cost because of the picture package. But it's not going to um, be any more credits. It's not going to be more than one table service meal in order to eat there. So I wouldn't have to worry about it when you go. Enrique Calixto from Florida wrote to me and said, Lou, I love the podcast. Listen to it every week. You do a great job of bringing the Disney news to all of us Disney fanatics. I want to know what special events are happening on Mother's Day at Walt Disney World. Is there any special dining, things like that, etc.? Thanks, Enrique. Enrique, Mother's Day is a great time of year to go to Walt Disney World. It can be a little bit crowded, especially in some areas, not only because it's Mother's Day, but because there's also the Flower and Garden Festival going on. But that's actually a plus if you are able to go down and want to spend Mother's Day there. Like I said, the Flower and Garden Festival is going on. Epcot is beautifully decorated, and there's also a lot of other activities as well. Davy Jones is going to perform again this year during the Coming Up Roses themed weekend during the popular Mother's Day brunch. And if you can get into it, this is what I would suggest that you do. It's held over at World Show Place. It's going to be on May 11th, and it's the Mother's Day brunch with very, very limited space. It's from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., and there's a wonderful buffet, it's a beautiful brunch, there's some nice music, uh, there's beautiful flowers all throughout World Show Place, which is actually a, another nice thing too because it's actually World Show Place is really the old Millennium Village. And if you've ever seen the big gated entrance in between Canada and the United Kingdom, that's the entrance to the World Show Place Pavilion. Prices are uh, $46.99 for adults, $19.99 for kids. And like I said, this is something that books up very, very fast. There are an, uh, a number of different packages, and you can you can actually use your Magic Your Way Plus Dining. It does require two table service meals. Uh, if you have any other premium packages, you can also use that as well. For more information, you can call 407-WDW-DINE. And again, that's going to be on Sunday, May 11th. Uh, it's Mother's Day at World Show Place from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Next email says, Lou, I just recently stumbled upon your website and your radio show. I have to say that I absolutely love it. I've been to Walt Disney World probably 20 or more times in the past 25 years, but I've never done any of the tours of the parks. You've probably discussed this at some time or another, but I haven't found any information on your website. In your opinion, which tour is better, the Keys to the Kingdom tour or the Backstage Magic tour? One is $60, one is $200. Now, I don't mind paying the $200, but if it's not worth it, I'll save my money. And also, do you have to pay admission price on top of the tour price? And do they allow you to continue to stay in the parks after the tours are done? Thanks and keep up the great work. Corey Tucker from Alabama. Corey, I've actually had a chance to do both of these tours uh, with Keys to the Kingdom. I've actually done twice. We'll start off with the Keys to the Kingdom. That is the smaller of the two tours. That is where you do meet up in the Magic Kingdom. It runs four times a day. That's $58, and you're right, that runs about four hours or so and really gives you a look at the history and some of the heritage and the philosophies behind the park. Um things that sort of led to the, the creation of the Magic Kingdom. You also look at some of the backstage areas. You do get to go, at least last time that I went, you do get to go into the Utilidors. You also get to go backstage and ride on two or maybe three attractions, and those attractions can vary depending on, on the day of the week and also what tour you take. This tour also includes lunch over at the Columbia Harbor House. Now, this does require park admission on top of the cost of of the tour itself so that's that's to answer your other question can you stay afterwards yes because you will have already had to have entrance into the park now the tours run multiple times a day usually around 8 30, 9 30 sometimes 10 o'clock you do need to book this in advance you call 407 wdw tour uh, for more information and to see about availability you also do need to be over 16 years of age because you are going to go down into the utilidors The other tour is Backstage Magic, and this is the one that I really, really enjoy. If you're worried about magic being spoiled, I don't look at it that way at all. I I look at it more as the magic being enhanced. Here, not only do you get to go into the Magic Kingdom, do a lot of the same things you did on the Keys to the Kingdom, including going into the Utilidor system, but you also go backstage at Fantasmic. You go to the costume department at Disney's Hollywood Studios. You also get to go into Future World and go backstage at an attraction there. Now, when I took it, you used to go backstage uh, over at Body Wars. Obviously, with Wonders of Life Pavilion being closed, you can't go there anymore. I'm not exactly sure where the tour takes you at this point. Um, The tour is seven hours, and you do get lunch. You have it over usually over at Mama Melrose's, over at the studio's. I have heard some rumors that Where You Go may be changing, if that hasn't taken place already. I have heard rumors about being able to go backstage at some other areas other than Fantasmic over at the studios, possibly Rock and Roller Coaster and or Tower of Terror, although I cannot confirm that at that point. You actually need to call and find out when you're ready to book your tour, if that is the case. The cost of the tour is $199. That's available Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Fridays, not on the weekends. You meet over at Epcot Guest Relations at 845, leave from there. Buses will take you to all the different departments. Now, I first personally found this tour absolutely fascinating. Uh, it was about eight hours long, and I loved every minute of it. And, and I really got a much deeper appreciation of what goes on, on stage and backstage at the parks. We also had an exceptional tour guide, which I think made the difference as well. I would like to take the tour again because it has been so many years since I've taken it see what may have changed uh, since then. So so maybe I am sort of uh, justifying another research trip down. Like the Keys to the Kingdom Tour, park admission is required. So you do have to have uh, a, a park ticket above and beyond just your Backstage Magic ticket. Again, this is something that you do need to call and book in advance. Uh, I recommend them both. Again, you really sort of have to determine what you might want to see more. Uh, can you really go you know, for a seven, eight-hour tour if that's really um, how you want to spend a full day basically at the park? If not, The Keys to the Kingdom is sort of a great introductory tour. You can see sort of how you like that. And maybe next time you go down, really take the full backstage magic tour. Either way, either tour, I I do not think you're going to be disappointed at all. Paul wrote in and said, Hey Lou, my family and I are heading to Disney the first week in November, which is Jersey Week. And now we're thinking to go a couple of days early and go to Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. Can this be booked 180 days out or is there a special date for this? I really need to get Halloween night because I promised my 8-year-old daughter that if we go early, we will trick-or-treat in the Magic Kingdom. Please let me know. Thanks, Paul. Paul, they don't really say when they're going to release the tickets for Mickey's Not-So-Scary Halloween Party. This past year, they did go on sale on May 1st and those were for dates ranging from September 14th through November 2nd being the last day of the party. Um certain nights especially Halloween night will definitely sell out in advance Um, I think you'd be pretty hard pressed to walk up to the gate Halloween night so I would definitely suggest that when this time comes when May starts to roll around start looking to see what the availability is over at Disneyworld.com to book your tickets Tickets for the uh, price. If you do book in advance, you save about $7 per ticket. The gate price is about $48.94. And if the advance purchase savings price is about $41, so you're saving about $7 per ticket. However, you do not save that $7 on Halloween night. You'll save it. There's, there's maybe six or seven nights throughout the party that you cannot save. So I don't want to give you the impression that you also save it as well. But if you are going to go on another night, so for example, if, you, if maybe you can't make it on Halloween night, you want to go on the 30th or the first day in November, you might be able to save uh, a little bit of extra money that way as well. Next email isn't a question, but it's actually a submission by one of the listeners who said, Lou, I enjoy your show. My wife and I listen to it every week. In the past, you've mentioned that Disney is going to redo Space Mountain. Also, in previous shows, I learned how much you miss Horizons. Well, that got me to thinking. I also miss Horizons, probably more than any other attraction. So what if the Imagineers were able to combine some elements from Horizons into Space Mountain? Maybe call it Space Mountain Century 3? The track could be a trip through the, quote, 50s in the future scene. They could have the Jetsons appeal while riding the intercolony space transporters. When the ride finished, you could exit onto the moving sidewalk that takes you through scenes similar to Nova City, which was Horizon City of the Future. They could really place several Horizon scenes that relate to tomorrow, and after all, you are in Tomorrowland, not to mention right next to the Carousel of Progress. So I just thought they could maybe reintroduce some of the sights, smells, and music from one of the most beloved rides. I'd love to get your opinion on this as well as your listeners. Also, I attached a small sound clip of what the ride might sound like It isn't great, but hey, it was fun. Hope you like the clip I've attached, and that came from Steve in Universal City, Texas. Well, Steve, that's a very interesting concept of sort of combining the elements of Horizons into what's rumored to be the update for Space Mountain. And now I'm somewhat conflicted because I'm I'm sort of a purist, so I like Space Mountain kind of just the way it is. Although I really do miss Horizons and would love to see some element of it come back in some way shape or form whether the marriage of those two can actually resolve themselves I really don't know but you're right that's an interesting concept I'd love to hear what listeners think maybe we can start a thread up over in the WDW radio forums over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com but you did put some hard work into the clip that you sent along I thought it was really cool so I wanted to go ahead and play it here
0: where future meets past and the present is a thrill.
1: (music) Walt Disney Imagineering presents your transportation to the future with Space Mountain Century 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 3.
2: The future from the 50s, a bit far out, don't you think? I guess so, but we always thought the future would be kind of fun.
0: Take our intercolony space transporter to Nova City, our city of tomorrow.
1: Remember, while on intercolony space
0: transporters,
2: you are on track to see the future. The future.
1: As you exit, please visit Nova City,
0: our city of tomorrow.
1: Our last email this week comes from Adam, who is Epcot Nut on the forums, who said Lou, first of all, congratulations on your success in the half marathon. Listening to yourself, Mike, and Brian was really inspiring for me as I continue to train towards the 2009 Walt Disney World Full Marathon. Having said that, now that you're a veteran of Walt Disney World Road Races, I figured you could answer a couple of questions for me. First, I trained with an iPod. I always have, and a controversy in their running world lately has been the use of iPods during races. I'm only aware of one race in which the organizers altogether banned them. I did notice on the Marathon website that it does say that headphones are not allowed. But looking at pictures from the race and reading some accounts, it sounds like Disney has yet to put a formal ban on headphones in the Marathon. Since you just recently participated in the half marathon, I figured you could tell me what you saw. Were people using headphones, and did you use an iPod? Uh, Adam, I'm going to stop here and answer this question first. Uh, I did read that on the website as well. When I was looking to prepare to come down, I thought about bringing uh, my iPod as well. But after... Seeing on the website that headphones were not allowed, and also talking to people like Mike, who said, "Listen, there's so much going on. You don't want to. You don't want to actually bring them down." I have to agree, and that's actually would be my suggestion for you. Um, I did see people with headphones on. I saw people with iPods, either strapped to their waist or strapped to their arm, where they were actually carrying them in their hands, which I couldn't imagine doing for for up to you know three three and a half hours. Um, I think, and I agree, having done this now once already. There's so much going on. There's so much entertainment. There's so much music. There's different DJs that play music along the way, uh, especially as you're traveling towards the Magic Kingdom. At one point, there's a a split where you can actually choose to go left or right. One is a disco side. One is a metal side, depending on what kind of music really gets you going and really pumps you up. Um, I, I wouldn't wear an iPod. Again, I think it sort of takes away from the experience. Again, Disney does Discourage it. I, I didn't see them actually trying to take them away from anybody, but uh, I think you're just better off not wearing one at all. Also in that same light, you say that I'm looking for some inspiring Disney music to help me along in my training. I enjoy listening to Illuminations 2000 and the theme from Soren, among a couple of others, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the subject. I did the same thing when I was training. Um, I put on my Odd Pod specifically Disney music and made sort of a playlist of songs that were... Very upbeat, uh, very sort of high-tempo, high-BPM stuff. Uh, I, I really liked Soren. some music from Main Street, Grim Grinning Ghost, Test Track. There's a great track out, out called the uh, Disney's Animal Kingdom Asia Remix, which I really enjoyed. There's also a lot of really good pre-show music from Fantasmic, which, is, uh, which are kind of Disney-branded remakes of some popular songs from a few years ago. Those are some of the ones that I really like. But I'm also going to direct your attention over to the forums at disneyworldtrivia.com there's a thread there that says Walt Disney World Marathon what's in your playlist and people sort of get on there and give some other songs that they like to listen to when they're training i'll put that link up in this week's show notes maybe give you some additional ideas congratulations on signing up for the full marathon good luck in your training and who knows maybe i'll see you marathon weekend That's all we're going to have time for this week in the listener email section. I'm sorry I didn't have time to get through more. As I've said, if you haven't heard from me via email or if you haven't heard your email read on the show, please be patient. I promise that I am going to get to them. And if you have a question, a comment, a suggestion, anything that you want to send in, you can send it anytime to Lou, that's L-O-U, at WDWradio.com. You could also call the voicemail at 206-202-4WDW. Thank you again for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed the show. Sorry again that it was a little bit abbreviated, but I promise that next week we will be back with all of our regular features. This was just one of those weeks when I had to record and produce early because I am leaving on a business trip to Orlando. Yes, that really means that I'm going to Walt Disney World to do some work on some upcoming projects, one of which is the next CD in my Audio Guide to Walt Disney World series. I can tell you now that it is going to be Adventureland, and I hope to have that out within the next couple of months. I'll also be doing some work for the new DisneyWorldTrivia.com site that I just launched uh, last week. I did tell you that it is still in beta, but there's a lot more features that are being added to the site and the forums all the time. So I invite you to come by, check it out, especially the expanded trivia section. And if you have any trivia or photos that you want to share and contribute, by all means, use the contact form. You can send those to me there. I really appreciate any help that you guys can provide. Also, don't forget to go and stop by our show notes page at wdwradio.com, where you can find links to some of the things that I talked about in this week's show as well as to some other friends of the show, including ownerslocker.com. Yes, my owner's locker is going to be waiting for me when I head on down. I really do use it and can't imagine actually going to Walt Disney World without having one. You can find out more about Owner's Locker over at ownerslocker.com. I also invite you to go and visit orlandofuntickets.com. The best prices on official and authorized Disney tickets, as well as the tickets to Disney shows, other special events, and attractions. You can go over to OrlandoFunTickets.com. And actually, when I was talking about the audio guide and the new website, I did forget to mention a lot of you have written to me and emailed me asking if the audio guide would or could be available as a download. Well, now that the new site has launched, the audio guide to Walt Disney World, Main Street USA is available as a downloadable file. That is just $7.99 for the download. The CD is just $9.99. The download is instant, and you can get it direct from the shop over at DisneyWorldTrivia.com. So that's going to do it for this week's show. Again, if you like the show, please help spread the word, tell others about it, and until next week, I'll see ya.
2: Hi, Lou. My name is Missy, and I live in Alaska with my my two little girls, um, and I'm going to say I'm wonderful... You have a wonderful show. I'm a huge fan. And anyway, I was just going to call about your story about Samantha Brown. I thought that was, or the interview with her, that was great. But just an interesting thing whenever, I'm a former cast member, before I moved to Alaska. I've only been back one time since, so I'm dying of uh, not being able to go to Disney very often. But anyway, when I worked there, um, I was on uh, break at the, now the Hollywood Studios, was MGM at the time. But uh, we knew that she would be in the parade, this was in 2000, for the taping of one of the shows, that she would, one of the Disney specials, and we knew she'd be in the parade that day, and I happened to be on break, and so we all gathered at the, it was around the entrance to the Hollywood Studios is where she was, um, where the parade ends, so after she came through, we all went out there and, and screamed, yay, Samantha, and so we were fans back in 2000 of Samantha Brown, but that was really neat to be able to see her there while I was working. But the other one, I've been meaning to leave this message since July, so it's been a while now in my mind, but you had a story in July, around the 4th of July, about Krista Anderson and the Voices of Liberty, and she was actually my high school teacher. I went to high school in Orlando, and down at um, Boone High School, she was um, in in the, the chorus department, and anyway, she was a wonderful teacher, inspired my friends and I to... Go into performance for our, a couple of my friends for our careers. But anyway, she actually worked at, I think, Superstar Television and at The Hunchback Show. There was a little while, I think she worked at SeaWorld. She was Streetmosphere actually when I worked in entertainment from 99 um, to 2001. Um, she, or 2002, excuse me. She um, was working Streetmosphere at that time. But anyway, I just thought it was wonderful. All of a sudden I heard my old high school teacher and and somebody that I looked up to on the, on the radio show, and that was just wonderful to have that memory come back, and I hope to see her when I go there next time. But anyway, absolutely love your show. It, it fills the Disney gap whenever I'm very, very far away. So I appreciate it, and thank you. Bye-bye.